In these 20 verses, believe it or not, Jesus gives us the basics of the Christian faith. When I read through them a couple days ago, I thought to myself initially, this is pretty disjointed. Jesus seems to be going from one subject to the next without any real tie between the subjects. And then as I had a couple conversations with friends and read it a little bit more carefully, what I discovered was that in these 20 verses, what we discover is that Jesus really does give us the basics, the foundation of the Christian faith. In verses 1 through 5, he tells us who we are, and we're going to look at that in a minute. In verses 7 through 10, he tells us who God is and what God has done for us because of who we are. And then in verses 15 through 20, he shares what happens to those that God saves. Okay, so he really does give us the basics of the Christian life. Who we are, what God has done for us because of who we are and what we were, and then the kind of change that God's work in our lives affects. We could say it even more specifically. In verses 1 to 5, he makes it very clear that we are sinners. In verses 7 through 10, he makes it very clear that God gives his son to sinners. And then in verses 17 and 18 specifically, he shares how God good works follow God's good gift of his son to sinners. So this really is, in a remarkable way, a summary of the Christian faith. So I want to look, before we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to look at those three things briefly. I want to unpack what he says in verses 1 to 5 about who we are, and then I want to unpack what he says in verses 7 through 10 and beyond about who God is and what God has done, and then beyond that, down through verse 20, the kind of change that God's sovereign entrance into our lives affects, okay? So, in verses 1 to 5, the premise really is this. The basic Christian conviction about people, all people, is this, that everyone has a log in their eye, okay? He makes that very plain. That's the point Jesus wants to get across. And you have to put yourself in his context at that time. What made Jesus so loved by many and so hated by many at the same time were statements like this, okay? I mean, he made statements like this into a context where people who were broken, people who knew they were bad, felt oppressed by people who thought they were good. So when Jesus levels the playing field like this and says, everybody's in the same boat, everybody's messed up, everybody has a log in their eye, everybody deserves God's judgment, whether you're a Pharisee or a prostitute, you can understand why the religious leaders wanted to put him to death. I mean, this guy was giving fuel to the masses to revolt against everything that the religious leaders we're teaching. I mean, Jesus' teaching is that all people are blind and all people are bad. Now, that's terribly offensive, not only to the people back in Jesus' day, 
but it's terribly offensive to people in our day too. We don't like to think of ourselves as blind and bad. We like to think of ourselves, maybe we'll be honest and say, okay, I admit I'm not perfect, all right? I mean, I admit that I don't do everything right, but I do a lot more right than a bunch of other people. And for whatever sick reason, we find great comfort in that. We define what being good is very narrowly. We define what progress and maturity is very narrowly. And then we find ourselves pursuing those things in one way, shape, or form so that we can feel better about ourselves. In fact, oftentimes when I hear Christian people talk about spiritual growth and maturity and what that actually looks like or what they think it looks like, it makes me step back and wonder, why are you pursuing spiritual maturity and progress? Because the way you speak makes it sound like you're almost doing it for you so that you can feel better about you. It's amazing. We are prodigious in our capacity to turn good things into things that actually shrink us. And so Jesus is making the very clear point here that all people are blind, all people are bad, despite the differences in our lives, we all share the same status, namely sinner, and that eliminates any basis for judging others, and it creates the possibility for compassion. Okay, now I know that these verses have been used and abused and taken out of context by someone who has gone off the deep end for whatever reason, and when someone actually in love comes to them in loving correction, they say, well, who are you to judge? Okay, I get that. I know these. Every verse in the Bible can be used and abused, okay? So I know that that is the, but it doesn't invalidate just because it's been used and abused. It doesn't invalidate what Jesus is actually saying here. And what he's actually saying here is that we all deserve judgment, and because all of us share the same status, no matter who you are or what you've done or how far you've come, all of us share the same status, namely sinner who deserves God's judgment, it eliminates, absolutely eliminates any basis for judging others, and it creates, as I said, the possibility for compassion. Let me explain what I mean. Life by law leads to comparison, okay? If we live our lives according to the logic of law, the way we've looked at it in Matthew chapter 5, the way we looked at it in Galatians, if you live your life according to the logic of law, it gives you the basis to compare yourself with other people. And it becomes a terrible burden. You start thinking to yourself, okay, here are the standards, here are the rules, here are the regulations, and if I can do my best to keep all of those things, that provides me with the foundation, it provides me with the paradigm to compare myself with people who aren't doing as well as I am. And so when you live life according to law, it leads to comparison. You start thinking to yourself, I'm either doing better than this person or I'm doing worse than this person or whatever. Life by grace, on the other hand, leads to compassion. Big difference. Okay, life by law leads to comparison. 
And it easily breeds either despair if you're not cutting it or self-righteousness if you think you are. Life by grace, this idea that all of us, are, all of us share the same status and all of us are deserving of God's judgment and all of us have a log in our eye and all of us are blind and all of us are bad and all of us are broken. When you understand that, now grace becomes the driver in your life and that actually provides you with compassion for other people. Because no longer do you look at someone who's screwing up and say, boy, I mean, I'm so glad, you know, just like the Pharisee in the temple courts. Thank you, God, for not allowing me to be like him, okay? Instead, what we end up saying is, but for the grace of God, go I. I get it. You and I share the same status, my sinful tendencies may not flush themselves out in the same way that yours do, but I still have the same sinful heart that you do, and it provides us with the capacity to be compassionate. I mean, think about this. So much of our identity, what you think about yourself, is anchored in us thinking that we're better than others. It's inevitable. I don't care who you are. Okay, I mean, if, if I, I will feel like I matter if I look better, if I have more friends, if I can walk into a room and think to myself, I'm probably the smartest guy in the room, I'm probably the richest guy in the room, I'm probably the prettiest lady in the room, blah, 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 whatever. There, it's, it's inevitable. We do it all the time, and we most of the time don't even realize we're doing it. I'm re you walk into a room and you think, and I'm going to get into this in a minute, when you walk in a room and you think, I'm more real than these people, or I've suffered more than these people, or I've accomplished more than these people, or whatever. I mean, we live our lives. You go down the road and you see a billboard. Ladies, you see a billboard of a beautiful woman, and you might think to yourself, the voice of accusation, the voice of law comes and says, you know, do more, try harder. That's the standard of success. And the way you typically deal with something like that is you quickly go back to, yeah, but here are some areas in my life where I'm sure I'm better than her. Okay? We do this all the time. I might not be as good of a student as him, but I'm a better athlete. Okay? I might, I might not be as popular as her, but I'm smarter. Um, I mean, we do this all the time. Okay? All the time. And... Um, and so much of our identity is anchored, is almost irresistibly anchored in thinking that we're better than others. I mean, um, you know, for me, it's a whole bunch of things. I'm not going to go through the entire list, but for me, it's a whole bunch of things. I mean, I inevitably live life by law. I'm comparing myself to other people inevitably. So are you. I'm just admitting it because I'm freer than you are, okay? Um, and yeah, I'm freer than you. See, that means I'm better than you, all right? See, it's inevitable. You can't, I mean, you can't escape it. I mean, I, you know, I listen to other preachers, and I'd like to say I listen to other preachers first so that I can be fed God's Word. I'd love to be able to say that. That wouldn't be entirely true, though. I mean, part of my reason for listening to other preachers is to see if they're better than me or I'm better than them, Okay? I mean, it's terrible to admit that, but it's true, and we all have those areas in our lives, whatever it is. You know, whether it's fathers, 
um, you know, trying to feel better about themselves by being a better dad than so-and-so. I might not be the best dad in the world, but I'm better than that guy, okay? I might not be the best husband in the world, but I'm better than, I'm better than that guy. I mean, we find or we try to find so much comfort in comparison, okay? And Jesus removes that from our arsenal of worldly tools by saying, you're all messed up, okay? You all have logs in your own eye. It's amazing. A while ago, um, I was uh, basically confronted by a guy who, um, you know, was just going on and on and on about, uh, in his opinion, uh, my refusal to talk about the need to forgive. Okay, I don't know what was going on in his life at that time, and I don't even know what sermon series I was preaching through at that time, but apparently I didn't say enough about forgiveness in one sermon as he thought I should. So he gets very, very upset about me not saying as much about forgiveness as I should. Uh, and what was so fascinating to me is I responded by, I knew something about this guy's life. He had been to see me before, and I went through and said, now, um, here's a whole host of things that the Bible has to say about being abrupt, being rude, being abrasive, being disrespectful, and it was just like the guy disappeared. You know? I mean, it's so unbelievably uh, amazing to me how all of us, every single one of us, are so capable of identifying what is wrong with someone else, just like Jesus says. I can identify the speck in your life, and I'm blind to the log in mine. It's unbelievable. And the law, God's law, this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's laying down the law, and he's reminding us of how desperate we are and how much we need God and God alone to deliver us. And so here's another place where he's saying, don't think you've grown out of your need for a Savior. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. You need help, and the only help that you can poss that can possibly save you is help from the outside. You can't help yourself, no matter how hard you try. So this is another place where Jesus does that, and it's amazing to me how it's so easy, so unbelievably easy for me to be able to see what's wrong with you, and so hard it is for me to see what's wrong with me, okay? I mean, this stuff goes deep. It really, really goes deep. And then let's say you say, I'm one of those people who recognize that. I recognize that it's easy for me to identify the speck in my brother's eye and uh, to ignore the log in mine. So I'm part of, you know, a group, a discipleship group or accountability group where we identify those things, okay, where we help, which is amazingly helpful okay? I mean, there's nothing like good Christian friends who in love are able to help you identify areas in your life that you're enslaved to, okay? But what so, at least this is what happened to me, what happened so quickly when I was in college and in graduate school is I was a part of one of these groups, and here we were in this group 
committed to helping one another, loving one another by showing one another what was wrong with one another, areas of blindness, and we became so terribly self-righteous about the fact that not everybody in the school was doing what we were doing, okay? Do you get the irony here? I mean, we, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but I mean, we were actually, we actually became, and then as a group, we became blind to the fact that everybody else isn't a part of a group like this, and they should be. I mean, look at what Jesus says here. And we became self-righteous about it. I mean, it's, un, it's unbelievable how deep this goes. Okay, so... Um, Hearing Jesus' word that I have a log in my eye, that I'm blind, that I'm broken, takes away the scorecard that I cling to in helping me to think that I'm better than you. All right? That's what this does. It's Jesus graciously taking away the scorecard, okay, the ledger, and saying, I'm not going to as long as you hold on to that scorecard and you try to find your worth and your value and your identity in believing that you're better than someone else or you have these areas of strength in places where others are weak or whatever the case may be, I'm stronger, I'm better, I'm faster, I'm smarter, I'm whatever the case may be, okay? Um, Jesus takes away the scorecard and essentially doesn't allow us to get away with this. He levels the playing field, uh, and he announces that no matter who you are or what you've done, we're on the same side. Everybody's on the same side. Everybody is a sinner in need of a Savior. Everyone. Now, for so long, um, and you've heard me say this before, our understanding of the Christian faith or our understanding of Christianity has been that God's goal is to make us good. And then we define good very narrowly, okay? I mean, you could make an argument that in one sense, as we're going to see in a minute, um, when God kills sinners and raises them to newness of life, Good works flow, okay? We're going to talk about that in a minute because he talks about that in a minute. But, so it's not necessarily a bad thing to say that God takes dead people and makes them alive and those alive people bear good fruit, okay? That's, that's an appropriate, good, right, biblical thing to say. It's a bad thing to say that God's goal is to make us good and then to define good very, very narrowly. Good is responsible, respectful, and rewardable. That's what good is. We all know responsible, respectful, rewardable people who are remarkably all of those things on the outside, who are so unbelievably far from God on the inside that it's not responsible, respectful, or rewardable. Okay, but that's the way we typically have defined it. Forget the fact that it's typically those who are most responsible, respectful, and rewardable who are the most impatient with and self-righteous toward those who aren't those things. Okay, isn't that ironic? Okay, I mean, it's unbelievable. We, we define good so narrowly. It's people who are responsible, people who are respectful, people who are rewardable, and we ignore the fact just like Jesus talks about here, we ignore the fact that 
the irony is that it's the people who are most respectful and rewardable and um, what was the other one? Responsible that are typically the most impatient with and self-righteous toward those who aren't those things, okay? There again, I see the law, I see the speck, I don't see the log. Um, I mean, life by law gives us the ammunition we need to be judgmental, and it is, as Tim Keller says, it is possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all of the biblical rules as by breaking them. Okay, I'm going to say that again. All right, listen to this. It is possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all of the biblical rules as it is by breaking them. I mean, it is fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating to me, that it's always the immoral person that gets the gospel before the moral person in the Bible. It's always the prostitute who understands grace. It's the Pharisee who doesn't. It's the unrighteous younger brother who gets it before the self-righteous older brother. It's amazing. But just in case you're sitting there beginning to feel self-righteous that you're not self-righteous, okay, there is, however, another side of self-righteousness that sort of younger brother types need to be careful of. All right, we anti-legalists can become just as guilty of legalism in the opposite direction. And you say, well, what are you talking about? Well, it's simple. Uh, we become self-righteous, terribly self-righteous, against those who are self-righteous. And this is the way we reason, okay? Many young Christians today react to their parents' conservative, button-down, rule-keeping flavor of older brother religion with a type of liberal, untucked, rule-breaking flavor of younger brother irreligion, which screams, that's right, I know I don't have it all together, and you think you do, therefore I know I'm not good, and you think you are, and that makes me better than you. Do you see the irony? Okay. It's unbelievable. I mean, I see it happen on both sides. You know, I see the Older brother types looking down their nose at the younger brother types going, you're just so lazy, and you're just so irreverent, and you're just so disrespectful, and you don't really care about the, the high and holy and serious things, okay? That's terrible self-righteousness. And then I see the reaction to that being, you know what? We're real and we're authentic, okay? And we're transparent, man, okay? And that means that we actually have it together more than you. That makes us better than you, okay? And I'm like, you're both going to hell, okay? <laughs> Beg God to save you because you're doing a terrible job at trying to save yourself. Both sides and all of us at one level fall into one of those categories. Listen, this is the deal. I mean, it's ironic that, you know, people can become proud that they're not self-righteous. I mean, is that, they become proud. They become remarkably proud that they're not proud like those other people over there. Um, I mean, you see this happen inside churches, okay, all the time. You know, you've got the evangelism people. 
We have to go out and reach the lost for Jesus. And then you've got the discipleship people. Why would we spend all of our time going out to reach the lost for Jesus when we're not even doing a good job of taking care of our own people? And then you've got the mercy ministry people who say, listen, all of you guys, this is such a wasted conversation. Do you know how many needs there are in this city? you know how many homeless people are on the streets every single night and how many single moms there are and people who don't have food to eat? Come on. And then you've got the people who give all of their time to children's ministry and say, this is the most important area of our church because this is where life begins. We need to invest here so that by the time they get to middle school and high school, uh, you know, we'll have something substantial to work with. And then you've got, you know, the youth people or the college people that say, no, 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 you don't understand. No matter what kind of foundation you lead or the foundation you lay when they're young, the pressures of society are so strong that, you know, people, they really need attention here. And then you've got people who say the men are the leaders of the church, and so we've got to give everything to men's ministry. And then you have people who say, no, the women really need the most help because they're doing most of the work anyway inside the home with kids, grandkids. They need, it's unbelievable, okay? I mean, <laughs> it's unbelievable what we hear. And I want to simply say and do say to them, you know, is it possible that you, like me, are able to see the speck in your brother's eye while ignoring the log in your own? Is it possible that we've become terribly self-righteous about the area where we are in or our particular sphere of success or where we're strong or whatever? Is it possible that we're trying to feel like we matter by focusing on those things that we do well and then by focusing on those areas where other people aren't doing well. I gotta feel like I'm better than somebody. I might not be better than everybody, but I gotta feel like I'm better than somebody, okay? Um, the fact of the matter is self-righteousness is no respecter of persons. It reaches to the religious and the irreligious, the button-downed and the untucked, the rule keepers and the rule breakers. And Jesus here reveals just how short-sighted all of us are when it comes to our own sin. And until we are able to see our own sin and shortcomings, first and foremost, we'll always be judgmental. No one likes being around a person like that. And we'll never be compassionate. We'll never actually have true compassion for broken, sinful, bad people. Okay? It'll fuel anger when they mess up, not compassion, unless we understand that we too are broken, bad people. And that's what Jesus is doing here. But into this huge mess, okay, of, you know, everyone's drowning in a sea of self-righteousness. Everyone's drowning in a sea of enslaving self-righteousness. And into this mess, God comes. Okay? And he makes that very clear in verses 7 through 10. Verses 7 through 10 assume and answer the premise and the problem of verses 1 through 5. Jesus flat out says here, humans are evil. He's not mincing any words. Humans are evil, and his point is that even evil people give to those that they love. I mean, this is what he says here. He says, I mean, I mean he makes it very, very clear, which... One of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, 
Okay, I mean, just building on what he says in verses 1 to 5, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, ultimately, the best thing that God has given, the best thing that God has given, in fact, the gift, capital G, from which all of the other gifts, lowercase g, flow, is Jesus. We read about Him clearly and compellingly and beautifully in John chapter 1. Into this mess, into this, into this world that had rejected Him, God comes. God extends this amazing grace gift into our mess. And what's amazing here is not only that God gives, but He gives to those who have a log in their eye. <clears throat> It's not just that God gives, it's that He gives to those who are evil. Okay, this is the scandalous nature of the gospel. I mean, it's one thing for a father, even if he's an evil father, to give something good to his son. Okay, it's another thing here when Jesus says, I mean, when God announces Christ and gives Christ to people like you and me who have logs in their eyes, who are ill-deserving, who are evil. And this is the same picture of God that we have in Romans chapter 5. God's love is shown to sinners by sending Jesus for sinners while we were yet still sinners. Okay, I mean, the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 5 is unambiguous. It's not as if we were seeking after God, deserving of God, recognizing the mess that we were in, and saying, God, help us, help us, help us. That's not the picture that the Bible paints. The picture that the Bible paints is of a group of frail, sinful, bad, evil, rebellious, mean-spirited people who are running from God, rebelling against God. And it's into that mess that God graciously gives us His Son. In Romans chapter 8, God gave rather than spared His own Son. Okay, this is, this is the gift, the ultimate gift. It's the narrow gate that leads to life. Okay, He talks here about the narrow gate and the wide gate, and it always begs the question, what's going on here the wide gate is, as Proverbs says, the way that seems right to people but ultimately leads to death. Okay? That's what the wide gate is. It's, it's the way of the law. Do good to get good. Make it happen on your own. The gate is wide because it allows you to take all of you through it. You understand? Nothing has to be left behind. Nothing has to die. It's the wide gate. Many find it. Many travel along that path. It's the, it's the way of law. It's, it's the way of self-salvation. Self, self it's the way of do more, try harder, get good, do good so I can get good, make it happen on my own. Life is all about me and the kind of things that I can generate for myself, the stability I can generate, the name I can make for myself, the worth and the value that I can get on my own. Life is about me. I'll do it. I'll make it happen. I'll make it happen as a father. I'll make it happen as a mother. I'll make it happen as a husband or a wife. I'll make it happen as a citizen. I'll make it happen. I'll make it happen. I'll make it, make it, make it happen. 
It's the wide gate. And Proverbs says that seems right to people, but it ultimately leads to death. Why does it seem right to people? Well, it seems right because it comes so naturally. I mean, that's the way we come into this world. I've said this before. The logic of law makes sense. Do certain things and get certain things. It's the logic of grace that turns everything upside down and makes no sense at all. And people say, have said to me before, well, the world doesn't work like that. And I always remind them, grace isn't from this world, <laughs> okay? I mean, it is otherworldly. It is an otherworldly intrusion. And it's the only power that raises sinners from death to life and changes everything, as we'll see here in a minute. So, the narrow gate that leads to life is the way of death. It is God's way. It's the way of the cross, God kills, but this leads to life because he raises the dead. In the narrow, at narrow gate, there is no cause and effect here. I do this and so I get that. This is God doing what God does, killing and making alive, putting you to death and raising you to life. That's what this is. The wide gate allows you to take all of you through Nothing has to be left behind. You don't have to die to get on this road, even though it ends in death. In the wide, on the wide road, it begins with you not dying and ends with you dying. It begins with what seems like a promise of life and ends in death. The narrow gate begins with death and leads to life. It's exactly turned around. And the way of the narrow road is God's way. It's the way of the cross. It's this amazing gift that God has given us in the person and work of His Son that opens the way for sinners like you and me to travel down the road to life. God gifts the ultimate gift of His Son, and He doesn't Jesus doesn't get given to the good. He gets given to the bad. The biggest thing that will block you and the biggest thing that will block me from understanding, appreciating, and reveling in God's amazing grace is not so much your unrighteous badness as it is your self-righteous goodness. A lot of unrighteous, bad people, well, let me rephrase this, all of us are unrighteous and bad. Some know it and some don't. And the ones who know it are the ones who love Jesus the most. So when Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much love much, he's not saying some people have been forgiven a lot, and some people have been forgiven a little, and therefore some people love a lot, and other people love a little. He says some people realize just how much they've been forgiven, and others don't. And the ones who realize, whose hearts have been gripped by just how much they've been forgiven, those are the people who love much. Those are the people who love Jesus. Those are the people who love other people. Those are the people who are compassionate and kind. Those are the people who are gracious. Okay, those are the people that you don't always feel accused by and judged by. Those are the people who are humble, not proud. 
Those are the people who get just how messed up they are and how great and mighty of a Savior Jesus is. And so when you, those are the people, you do have people in your life that if you really, really, really mess up, you just know. I mean, think about your life for a minute and the people in your life, all right? I'm sure if you're anything like me, you have people in your life who if you really, really, really mess up, you'll run to and others that you will stay far away from. There might be that one person in your life that you would run toward, and there may be other people in your life that you would run away from. Now, what's the difference between those two people? I mean, think about it. What's the, what kind of person are you? Which one of those two people are you? And what's the difference between those two people? The difference between those people is this one truly understands just how much he or she has been forgiven. And so when you run to that person, you find understanding and compassion. You find someone who goes, I get it, my heart has gone there a thousand times. To this person over here who's not acutely aware of just how much they've been forgiven, they've actually believed that the Christian life is a ladder that you climb one moral step after another, and they're higher than you on that ladder, and they can't understand why you haven't reached the point of spiritual success that they've reached. You know how those people make you feel. You would never go to them with a big problem in your life. Why? Because they become the voice of debilitating accusation. My father, Father's Day, my father died uh, two, two years ago, a little over two years ago, and he was a psychologist and the greatest Christian man I've ever known in my life, the greatest people person I've ever known in my life. I have never met anyone ever who knew my dad that did not absolutely love him. It's amazing. It's amazing. They don't say that about me. They don't say that about my mom. They don't say that about my brother, Stefan. They don't say that about anybody else. But they said it about my dad. No one. And I remember asking him uh, questions about just, his practice and why he got into counseling and all of those things. And he just said, I just became very aware of my own problems. And I figure if I could know my own problems, I would be helpful to other people in knowing their problems. And I mean, people loved him because while he gave good advice and good counsel and while he knew how to be strong, there was this compassionate posture of understanding with him that no one left his office, no matter what they had done, feeling like this guy thinks he's better than me, ever. So here what we discover is that uh, this absolutely helps us to understand just how deeply we've been forgiven. And it enables us to be the kind of compassionate people <clears throat> that the Bible calls us to be, that God calls us to be. And this gift, okay, this gift of God's Son that comes into our mess, this enslaving pool of self-righteousness, and kills sinners and raises them to newness of life and sets them on the narrow path, this gift of God coming down, of the Savior coming to sinners, that's what Christianity is, by the way, okay? Christianity is not our movement toward God. That's what every other world religion is. Christianity is God's movement toward us. And that's just as true when it comes to 
justification as it is sanctification and glorification. It's not simply true at the beginning of the Christian life. It's true all throughout the Christian life. It's always God's movement toward us. And this remarkable gift of God's movement toward us changes everything. And he makes that clear here, especially in verses 17 and 18. The result of the gospel is that the good trees that God plants bear good fruit as naturally as an apple tree grows apples. Okay? I mean, the crucial thing here is that we're not good because we do good things. We do good works because God has made us a good tree by the gospel. Okay, big difference. It's not, um, we do good things because we're good. It's, we do good works, service to our neighbor, compassionate love and service to our neighbor, because God has made us a good tree by the gospel. We are blind and bad, but God gives Jesus to these kinds of people, to the sick, the sinner, the lost, the dead, you, me, and he remakes us. And this is so important for how we think about the Christian life and good works. I mean, this is so important to understand this, okay? Because the tree and fruit metaphor makes a very, very important point. You don't grow apples from an apple tree by standing out near the branches and telling the little buds to grow, to try hard, and to become apples, okay? Try that. It doesn't work, and yet that's precisely the way we think parenting or preaching or the Christian life works. If I just tell my sons and my daughter 10,000 times to be obedient and be respectful, which I need to tell them because the Bible tells them that, tells me that I should tell them that because that paves the life for freedom. Okay, but. For me to think that if I just tell them over and over and over and over and over and over again, just lay down the law, tell them, grow, 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 grow. Maybe one day their heart will be awakened to this deep affection for, I'm, okay, I'll do it. You know, we make a distinction here at this church between the law and the gospel. And both are good because both come from God. Both are necessary, but both have very unique job descriptions. This cannot do what this does, and this cannot do what this does. And so while the law rightly says do, the law shows us, for instance, what godliness looks like, but it doesn't have the power to make us godly. That's the job description of the gospel. The law shows us what a sanctified life looks like, but it doesn't have the power to sanctify. The law shows us our sin. It reveals our sin, but it doesn't have the power to remove it. That's the job description of the gospel. And so, point here is, when it comes to the Christian life, if we just stand over ourselves or we just stand over other people and we say, do more, try harder, try, 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 God says, obey, so obey. God says, do, so do. That's fine. Say that. I say that to my kids. But don't make the silly mistake of thinking that saying that, standing outside the apple tree and saying, grow, is going to be what produces bright, shiny red apples. Only God can do that, okay? It's the, it's the word from another world that alone can do that. And that's what Jesus is talking about. 
You grow apples from an apple tree by watering the roots, okay? And the root of the good tree that God has planted is the gospel. So what Jesus is saying is that fruit, namely good works, love for God and neighbor, grow from the Christian as naturally as apples grow from an apple tree. That's the goal of the Christian life and sanctification and spiritual maturity and growth. It's increased spontaneity when it comes to love for God and others. Increased and an increased natural flow. I love what one writer said. This is so good. I shared this on Wednesday night a number of weeks ago. Because this is the way most of us handle the Christian life. Okay, it's the way we treat it. And he sort of blows that out of the water by saying, the good seed cannot flourish when it is repeatedly dug up for the purpose of examining its growth. Okay, we, don't we do that all the time? We dig, dig, dig. How am I doing? How am I doing? Am I getting it right? Am I getting it done? How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? And then we wonder why we become neurotic and narcissistic, the exact opposite of the way the Bible describes Christian growth. The exact opposite. The Bible describes Christian growth as I must decrease, he must increase. Okay? Christ living in me, the hope of glory. There is nothing in the Bible at all that encourages us to take our eyes off of Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, so I can focus on me and how I'm doing. Nothing. It is never, ever, ever honoring to God, ever, to take our eyes off of Christ to focus on ourselves, ever. And so he says, you know, I mean, the, how, the good seed cannot flourish when it is repeatedly dug up in order to examine how it's doing. And that's the way many people inside the church live. And so what we need, and then we wonder why fruit, real fruit doesn't grow, deep fruit doesn't grow, love and humility and those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those things, why it's not there, why we're impatient with people and all of these things. We might be behavior, behaving better than we did 10 years ago, but my heart is still angry and frustrated and judgmental and self-righteous, and I still try to find comfort in believing that I'm better than somebody, all those things. Why, Why aren't I growing? Because I'm so focused on my growth. <laughs> okay, I've said it before. I mean, the, um, when we stop obsessing over our need to grow, that is what the Bible means by growth. <laughs> okay? We're growing beyond our obsession with ourselves, and that's Good. And so all of this means that we need to focus on the root. The fruit of good works grow when we keep watering the root of faith with the word of the gospel. Okay, I'll say that again. That's so important for us to understand because that's what we focus on here at Coral Ridge, and that's what we're going to be focusing on in a minute when we come to the Lord's table. That's why we come to the Lord's table. It's why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The fruit of good works grow when we keep watering the root of faith with the word of the gospel. The focus is never the works themselves, ever. That's the fruit. The focus is always the root, which is faith, and the word of the gospel, which waters that root, which then naturally produces the fruit. So when we gather around the Lord's table, God is watering the root of faith with the word of the gospel. When we gather around the Lord's table, what God is saying is, 
It is finished. Paid in full. Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourselves. He has come to accomplish for you what you could never accomplish for yourselves. And because our faith is weak and because we are all partly unbelievers until we die, we need the root of faith to be watered by God's good word. By, a, by being reminded by God of his unconditional promise to save sinners like you and me. To be reminded because we so quickly forget we forget it every day. You and I will forget it as soon as the Lord's Supper is over. Which is why we need to hear it all the time. And here we get to taste it. We get to taste and see that the Lord is good. If you've never taken communion with us before, uh, we do it a little bit differently. You'll get up out of your seat. And the, if you've never done it, the ushers will guide you. It's not confusing. Uh, but you... You'll get up out of your seat and you'll come forward and you'll take the elements, you'll take the, you'll take the bread and you'll dip it in the cup from one of our elders. Uh, if you're with your family, if you're with your husband, your wife, your children, whatever, all come together, gather around the bread and the cup together, uh, and then you'll end up going back to your seat. But this is a time of celebration. This is not a funeral service. This is not a, this is not a place where uh, you're supposed to, you know, uh, think terribly about all of the bad things you've done. It's actually refreshing to reflect on what you've done and what Christ has done to save you. And that's what we do here. We look down and we examine ourselves to be reminded that there is absolutely nothing I could have ever done to save myself, ever. And then we emerge from that examination with a great heart full of joy and celebration from being reminded by God who Jesus is and what he's done for sinners like us.